during these days you're hearing from a lot of very brainy and very motivated and very uh, energetic people. And some of them are opening up and telling how they do it. But what I'm curious about is how do they really do it? That is, how does their brain work to allow them to do the things which we've been hearing about? Now, even a physicist is not naive enough to think that that's a question that you can hope to answer, at least in the sphere of science, in any reasonable time. So I've picked a simpler problem, which is to try to understand how the brain deals with vision. That is, how do we know what's out there based on those few photons that get through our tiny iris and hit the retina? Um, in the eight minutes that I have, I'm going to tell you two facts which illustrate why I'm optimistic that we may be able to get somewhere on that problem and that maybe the whole question of how the brain works is a frontier that we will see advancing fast uh, during the next decade or two. Recently, a student of mine, a very bright young man uh, named Kumar, said that he didn't really believe what the textbooks say about how we perceive depth. And so we cooked up the following experiment, which he did. Uh, it's, it's very easy uh, for us to say how far away one finger is in front of the eye. And according to all the textbooks, the way we do it is that there's an image of this finger on the right retina and an image on the left retina. And then just with a little bit of geometry and trigonometry, we figure out how far the thing away is away by knowing how far apart our eyes are. Now, we're very good at telling which finger is closer in a display like that. In fact, we're 10 times better than we ought to be. If we were simply a camera, we wouldn't be able to do it as well as people do it regularly uh, in real life and in the laboratory. And so we've done this experiment, and we've measured how talented people are at telling which finger is closer. And according to all the textbooks, all they're doing is measuring where images are on their retinas. But then we did the following thing. We put a picture frame around the two fingers, and we tilted the picture frame, and everybody got the wrong answer. And they got the systematically wrong answer, and we could predict what answer they would give they were being fooled by this tilted picture frame. So it's obvious that our brains are not calculating where the fingers are based on only the images of the fingers, but we're using other information. Now the fun part. Now you ask the subjects who are generally paid five bucks an hour as undergraduates to sit there and tell which finger is closer. Okay. Which way was the picture frame tilted when you gave that answer? Many of the students were indignant, and they said, what do you mean? The picture frame hadn't changed. And we said, OK, kids, the rule is we're tilting the picture frame, and we're also playing with the fingers. Now, we want to know which finger is closer and which, picture, which way is the frame tilted. Nobody could do it. And so we were in a situation that there was a subconscious influence which was systematic and repeatable, and which we could measure quantitatively. Uh, Sigmund Freud would be very proud of us, because we had our finger on a subconscious quantity that we could measure, but which the subject could not report on. 
So that goes into the theory that we are trying to build, that the brain is a lot more than a camera and a computer, but it's a thing which can take in signals from all over. Now the next part of the, of the reason for my optimism is that people in other laboratories, not, not us at all, are learning a lot about the wiring diagram. How is the eye connected to the brain so that the brain can somehow get the information to chew on or massage? This slide was made by sitting a monkey in a chair and getting the monkey to look at a cardboard bullseye, the kind that, a, that an archer would use for target practice. And then after the monkey had stared at the bullseye for about a half hour, we used a very, not we, colleagues in another department, used a very sophisticated technique to find out while the monkey was looking at the bullseye, which cells in the brain were working hard and which ones were loafing. And this slide, my only one, uh, will show you the answer. Uh, on the top, you see the bullseye, and on the bottom, what you see is a picture of the back of the monkey's head, uh, of the, the so-called cerebral cortex. So this part back here is what you're seeing. And what you see there is a literal picture of the bullseye, although slightly distorted. And we know how to deal with that distortion. It's a very simple mathematical thing. So what we're led to is the conclusion that at the back of our heads is something like a miniature television set, which contains a literal picture of what's out there. You're supposed to be really impressed by that slide. <laughs> That slide was made by Roger Tutel when he was a graduate student in the lab of Russ Develoy in Berkeley. It's very encouraging that it's not totally magic in our heads, but that there's really something physically there that we can measure using chemical and physical methods which somehow reflects what's out there and we know that not only the region back here, but many other regions, about 25 or 30 of them, contain some distorted version, some transformed picture of what in principle is really out there. And so what we're hoping and many other people are hoping to do is to combine these observations about what it is we really see and what really goes into that process with rapidly increasing knowledge about the wiring diagram so that soon we may have enough information to improve our educational system. We may have enough information to improve the way we print books and the way we present videos and the way we think about ourselves. So this information is going to collect rapidly and those of you that have an interest in this general area of science, I think we'll find lots of opportunity for success and for great satisfaction in learning about how people work. Thank you very much. Okay, uh, my name is Victor from Sebastopol, California. Uh, I'm wondering, do you think that there's an inherent limit to the understanding we can have the mental processes 
that we're studying with the mental processes we're studying. Uh, can, we boot, can we bootstrap our brains to understand right. our brains? Can you pull yourself up by your bootstraps or whatever right. using? Uh, that's a very uh, uh, interesting philosophical question. And I don't know the answer. But I don't need to know the answer in order to get up in the morning and go to the lab with great enthusiasm. Uh, sooner or later, I may run into a brick wall, but I don't see it from where I stand now. And so we keep going. I didn't mean to imply, though, that I think our brain is going to be a t completely deterministic or causal machine in which you turn a crank and the gears work and the answer comes out nor will it be like a digital computer, which, when it's working right, will always give the same answer to the same problem. But there's an enormous element of uh, chance and gamble and, and fluctuation that's going to influence what uh, we use as a way of modeling the brain. I think there's a general principle in the brain, which we have found in experiments that I can't tell about, which I call the principle of constructive boredom, which means that after you look at something for a while, you lose interest in it. And you're much more interested in anything in the picture that changes. And I think that has enormous survival value. They were always looking out for what is it that's novel in the scene. Machines don't do that. They don't get tired of what they're doing. But we get tired, and that's built in, and that's good for us. And I think we're going to find a lot of other principles like that, so that when we finally say we understand it, it isn't going to be that it's a mechanism that will work totally reliably, but hopefully what we call understanding will somehow simulate a little bit what we ourselves do. Uh, Jordan Koss from Northbrook, Illinois. I was just wondering, what caused you to change your interests and, I guess, your perspective on things from particle physics to molecular biology? Well, I myself am a good example of what I hope is constructive boredom. Uh, uh, but it's a little more than that. The field I was working in is uh, high energy physics or particle physics remains a fascinating subject, uh, giving very deep insights into the nature of our world and how it got here. But unfortunately, the experiments that I was doing were very expensive, many millions of dollars for each experiment. So I wasn't allowed to have a hunch. But after I had my hunch, then I had to prepare a, a document, maybe an inch thick, to convince a committee of my colleagues that, that they should spend the millions, millions of dollars on my experiment and not, not on someone else's. So that high energy physics, uh, in my experience, became a highly political and highly social activity. And I tend to be kind of a loner. So I didn't like the idea that I couldn't follow up hunches. Uh, and so then I switched into molecular biology because I'd always been interested, as everyone else, in how life works at the basic level. Um, but then as molecular biology proceeded, it was very much an amateur's profession at the beginning. But pretty soon, it depended on very skillful biotech, uh, biochemical techniques, and I'm no good as a chemist, and so I wasn't good at it after it got to that stage. And so I switched once again, but I'm convinced that's the last time. I'm going to devote the rest of my professional career to trying to learn things about the brain.